You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. All right, if you just say one, two, three or something you're in, I'll just look at the meter. One, two, three, yeah. four. That's coming through. All right, well, it's a bit out of practice. It's been about two months since I've hit the record button. Yeah. But do you want to go ahead and uh, just give your name and which one of your many hats, I guess, you're sort of wearing tonight? Uh, yes, so my name is Dan Parsons, and uh, I guess... Generally speaking, I like to describe myself as an airport safety and operations nerd. Obviously, have a day job in that area with a regulator. I've worked for a number of regulators around the world, but I've also worked for airport operators uh, in Australia and New Zealand. I have a couple of sort of side hustles, although they don't make much money uh, or any money really. And uh, one of those is I like to write safety-related articles on my personal website or what you used to would call a blog, uh, which is the runwaycenterline.com. And we'll chat about that and uh, a few other things you got there. But when did you first get involved in, in airport operations? Uh, so I've always been an aviation guy ever since I was a little kid, sort of growing up in the shadow of uh, a, a RAF base, RAF base Williamtown. And uh, always wanted to do something in aviation and through many twists and turns, ended up working for an airport consultancy in Western Australia. And it just sort of grew from there. Did uh, a lot of technical work and training that organization, then uh, jumped to the dark side and worked as an aerodrome inspector for CASA about uh, 12 years ago and um, sort of just jumped each side of the fence, working for operators, working for regulators, and moved around quite a bit, specifically within the airport space mainly, over over most of that time. In terms of the, the heliport side of things, like it, it's always been fairly transparent for me. Like Obviously, there's, there's CAP 92, you need to, to know for your air, air rules and things like that. But whatever I've offered, operated from, it's either been paddock or it's been tarmac somewhere, and I've never really had to go through any involvement in terms of, of siding or getting approvals or operating, you know, a, a picture-perfect textbook heliport. Uh, so I, I guess that's the experience we'll be dragging out uh, from you as we go through. But, again, on that side of things, I guess as background for this, for this talk, like you're fairly prolific on, on LinkedIn and uh, talking at different conferences. But in terms of the heliport side of things, what's, the, what's been your involvement? Overall, fairly little, um, although it, it's, it's quite fair to say that heliports aren't that much different to other aerodromes in that the, the bulk of aerodromes generally, and that's the all-encompassing term of everywhere you may put an aircraft on the ground deliberately, most of those go unregistered, uncertified. Um, so, for example, in Australia, we have around 300 certified aerodromes, but probably closer to 3,000 aerodromes altogether. And when you consider that heliports are probably similar in that respect, although they don't have the top category within Australia's regulatory system or many regulatory systems around the world, it is actually something that 
the industry, I think, as, as a whole is starting to grasp a little bit better. And even at the highest levels, like the most recent proposed amendments to Annex 14 Volume 2 will include certification requirements for heliports generally, and it'll be up to different countries to decide on how to implement those expectations. But it's definitely growing to bring heliports or helicopter landing sites into the same conceptual sphere as the rest of uh, the aerodrome industry. And then hot on its heels, which is definitely not our talk today, but something which will pop up a lot more uh, vertiports and, and all manner of EV toll aircraft operating yeah, areas, sure. which is going to be a, a real boom industry, I think, over the next uh, decade or two. And for context too, again, without having you know, flying overseas, I would say Australia, a heliport would be a fairly premium piece of real estate type thing because generally the helicopter operators are just farmed out to our, you know, the, the back sections of the, the tarmac somewhere at an airport. You know, and the Sydney airport's got like a dedicated one. There's one on the, on the Melbourne River. Uh, and then really you're starting to then think about hospitals and some of the EMS operators and maybe some mine sites. But it's it's not really a, an Australian helicopter pilot experience for for the majority of us to actually operate out of a heliport in terms of what you would think in terms of a KO with lines and and nice markings. Yeah, definitely. It, it, it's been my experience that most heliport facilities do come with a, a certain additional expectation or requirement. So HEMS is one or transport out to oil rigs and offshore platforms and things like that. There's, there's this additional need that's uh, driving the heliport development far beyond air, air transport generally of, of the public, so to speak. So there's always this extra dimension to heliports there that drive that, especially within Australia and in many other places I've definitely worked. Um, I know there's been a push for a more robust on-demand type helicopter industry in other parts of the world, again, probably leading into that vertiport urban air mobility concept. And it'll be interesting to see where that goes and where that drags helicopter operations over the next couple of years. Um, but uh, yeah, there always seems to be that extra dimension of the need associated with a heliport that is, not, is very specialised in terms of helicopter operations. And it's going to lead into what we're talking today in terms of having the expectations of what you get in terms of safety at a, at a heliport. So I guess the thing that kicked this off, and, and for me, the kind of previous episodes, is I see an interesting post on Facebook or LinkedIn and then over a process of, of catching up, I think it's taken us a couple of months to, to get to this point. Mm-hmm. So you, you had a post where you broke down and I guess linked to your, to your article there. There's a, a Pasadena Police Department accident video that gets shared quite often with the helicopter coming into land, both helicopters clip blades and, and essentially get destroyed. And it's one of those videos, there's probably a, you know, a handful of them that will just get recycled every couple of months mm. on a, a Facebook group or wherever it is, someone will, will grab it and put it up and, and you know think that no one else has seen it. And it's almost get to the point now where it's this one or other ones. I've seen people actually groan in the comments because they just get recycled so often. But it's it's kind of then, once someone's posted it, it's a free-for-all in the comments in terms of everyone has a their two cents and, and chipping in and, and, I guess, judge and jury on social media in terms of, of what's happened. Uh, and uh, I can't remember the, the psychology that 
or the turn that goes with it, but it's kind of attribution of of error or what happens that if something, you know, someone else does something and it doesn't work out very well, you tend to blame the person in terms of their, you know, behaviours or their characteristics or them as a person. Whereas if the same thing happens to you, you tend to uh, attribute it to outside factors in terms of bad luck or, or someone else's involved because you had the best of intentions doing what you were doing. Um, so it tends to get laid on uh, to these things uh, quite a lot. Mm, absolutely. But, this- but you're absolutely right. The, this, this video, the Pasadena PD helicopter collision, um, uh, I'd seen it multiple times before. The, the event itself is almost 10 years old. It makes for compelling footage because, thankfully, nobody died, so you don't have to worry about any particular gore. It's it's just the equipment is destroyed. If you're a helicopter lover, that's probably horrific enough. But uh, at least it, it's shareable in that sense. But you, you're definitely right around the, the attribution error that people fall into. I'm personally, I'm a big proponent and, and wrote recently that I don't mind speculation in the aftermath of an event. I think it's it's healthy because we often wait a very long time for accident investigation to be completed and reports to come out and everything like that, and we might miss opportunities in the meantime. Um, but what gets me about this is the the blame that people put on the pilot uh, that comes into land and uh, park the aircraft at this particular helipad, and and that's the bit that really got my goat up and the. The second time I saw this video, this is right at the start of uh, COVID lockdowns where I was living at the time. In fact, I just rechecked the date I posted. It was the day my family left to return to Australia and I was left in the, my sort of home country at the time on my own. So I was I, just a confluence of factors brought me together where I'd seen this video again, all the comments flowing from it. And it was like, no, that that's, you really got to have a look at some of the facts here because the the blame they throw on that second pilot and not the first pilot at all, the one that puts their aircraft in the position, which as we'll talk, I, I believe is the, the real cause, proximate cause. I think there's a systemic organisational issue there uh, that is investigated as well. But just the pile on to that uh, second helicopter pilot is just amazing when this video pops up. Yeah, so there's a bunch of context I want to front load just to, I guess, tailor the conversation uh, and set expectations here. Uh, the first one is that, like many accidents, it's amazing helicopters is how quickly something can go wrong. So everything's fine and then, you know, two seconds later, like two destroyed helicopters and disaster. So it's, it's just inherent with the operations of helicopters and large moving bits of metal that things go bad very, very fast. The, the other part... This is probably the first time we've kind of looked at an accident investigation like this without the person or people involved actually being on, on the talk. Mm, so okay. it's it's quite, you know, if obviously if someone's pulling apart their, their own experience or if it's very historic, uh, you can sort of talk about things. So I'm very conscious of, as we said, going through and, and holding a position on different things because... I just know how fallible I am and if I was in different situations, it could quite easily happen to me. So the the approach, I guess, I'm sure it's the same way you're, you're approaching it or thinking about it anyway, is the fact that this is all to prevent future accidents and just something might clue that next time you walk out to 
your helicopter parking area that is just something in the back of your mind going, oh, that sounds, you know, that looks a little bit different. Um, or they call it boiling a frog, which happens in, in this story where you're just so used to operating in a certain way that you just don't see it with the fresh eyes. And so maybe after we pull apart this particular incident, uh, it might just help someone go and look at their parking arrangement with a slightly fresh eyes. So, yeah, that's pretty much it. It's As you said, there's you, you can almost hold in your head at the same time here two different viewpoints and, and quite legitimately, you know, either one could be true at the same time and, and hold them, whereas we'll talk about this, but, you know, responsibility of pilot and command is like complete responsibility for everything that happens to the helicopter, but also that, you know, sometimes things are stacked against you. Uh, so, that, yeah, I, I guess that was just some of the things I wanted to pull out in, in advance, the fact that we're definitely not uh, coming from a position here where we are, uh, you know, experts in this particular case. We weren't there and we we're relying on accident uh, reports. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we we're, we're, don't purport to be any significantly better than people that just watch the video, um, although I, I've done some digging around the NTSB website to try and find what they did collect. And, and as far as I can tell, this event, obviously without loss of life, did not rise to a significant level requiring a significant investigation from the NTSB. But they did collect uh, evidence, which you can find on their website. And there were two, I guess, reports prepared Although with the changeover in the NTSB website since I posted this uh, article, one of the pieces or both links actually failed subsequently and I've since recaptured one of the documents, but I don't think I can find the other one anymore that described their findings and, and outlined the process. So we get a fairly good report, but definitely nothing to the level of a major aircraft accident. Do you want to go through, I guess, the the big ticket items of the event? Um, perhaps people. Yeah, well, maybe take- maybe a timeline. In the set, I've made a bunch of notes there to pull things out. But depending on which document you've got there, the one I've got has got a you know a reasonably good timeline and, and sort of witness statements and things. So, do you want to maybe that's the best thing first of all is just step through the the background and, and you know I guess what happened. Yeah, well, let's tic-tac. I've got a fairly short summary uh, in front of me, but there there might be there's some pieces which are perhaps relevant. But so if you want to interject and and add some more pieces to it, but I guess essentially the scenario starts with one Pasadena police helicopter already in the air. I'm not quite sure how long they were in the air. Um, monitoring traffic and movement around a fairly significant college football game, I think, is the context for what's going on. And the weather is generally not good, which is unusual, I think, for California. And this aircraft is operating, doing its mission at that particular time, and at some point decides that it will then return to its dedicated police helicopter heliport, its, its home base, essentially. And whilst it's making those maneuvers or while it's conducting its mission and then maneuvering back to base, a second uh, helicopter, police helicopter, is wheeled out of the hangar and is preparing for whatever flight it intends to undertake. And whilst it's preparing for the flight and I think getting some last-minute instructions from one of the managers there who's talking at the door, the 
initial helicopter that was in the air, it approaches the heliport, uh, hovers uh, or enters into a hover over the FATO, which is remote from the parking positions, and transitions into an air taxi mode and is aiming for, I think, what they call pad two in the, in the literature. It's aiming for pad two. The aircraft that is still on the ground uh, is thought to be on pad one, and I say thought to be because that's, I think, where the, uh, everything becomes unraveled a little bit later on. And as you can imagine, they're two very similar Bell Jet Ranger-style helicopters uh, as the aircraft in the air lowers right down to ground level that's exactly when the two rotating discs meet and uh metal flies everywhere it's a quite spectacular video that um i think you mentioned earlier about how quick these things of like escalate it it almost de-escalates as quickly as it, it happened it's it's like an explosion from the the meeting of those rotating parts and then everything settles down fairly quickly, and luckily we see people getting up and moving around the heliport afterwards with, uh, I think, only minor injuries, uh, but of course two destroyed aircraft. And that's essentially the scene we're presented in the videos. There's no sound, there's no context a lot of the time when people share these videos on social media, and, uh, and then the comments flow from there. Yeah, so... One place it's posted is on, is on Reddit, and that particular one has a, a thousand plus comments on it. Plus, wow. how many times it's been posted on, on Facebook and, and wherever else that people have chipped in. Uh, so, so yeah, the the notes I've got here again, I'll just basically expand on the initial part and I'll let you pull it apart. So, uh, and again, it's the first time today I've, I've seen the experience of, of the the pilots involved. So it sort of puts out another slant on things too. So I'll give that experience at the end of this, but. Um, yeah, essentially, the helicopter, the timeline, it was a six-minute flight. So they've taken off at basically 3.52, obviously got airborne, done a weather check, and essentially have cut a circuit and come back and landed. So it was oh, okay. a six minutes from takeoff to rotors impacting. So in that time, the second aircraft has been been rolled out. and get you to talk about the position there. But, yeah, so in their minds, so they were rolling out to – for a basically a quick response call out, so something had happened, mm-hmm. and they were being rolled out to get on scene and, and respond to whatever that uh, that police call out was. And yes, yeah, so you can imagine the it's just like Swiss cheese as we go through here, the mindset or the mental model of that second crew in terms of the first aircraft left, they're probably not expecting it back at, at this point. So that's kind of where we we sit. Yeah, that, that expectation that they've got the helipad to themselves is is quite an interesting one. And then as you go through the investigation report, and as you, I think people with an eye to those details can see in the video, the, the pad, pad one, that that second aircraft is essentially, I guess, aiming for when it's rolled out of the hangar, it, it doesn't go into that middle position on that pad. They move a, a little bit to the right, and I think there's some additional documentation that comes from the Pasadena PT, uh, sorry, Pasadena PD in the NTSB files that essentially describes that actually they didn't use pad one as it was designed a lot because it was very close to, I think, the refueling equipment that is on the edge 
of the pad there. So it was sort of general practice for pilots to move a little bit further away from that when they were preparing for flight from pad one. And so, yeah, those two issues sort of come into play, this latent condition, uh, this normalized deviance, if you will, or just at least normalized behavior relating to the use of pad one, coupled with expectations of being alone out on the pad because your quick response and ready to get out, no one else is there, all comes together with the second aircraft, sorry, the first aircraft returning to the heliport. I forgot to give the experience of the, the, the pilots, especially there's other people on board, which we'll, we'll cover at some point. But I guess if you're listening, just, you know, have a, have a plaque. We're talking two pilots here and, and just have a ballpark guess in terms of, of how many hours you think each of them has. But the, the incident pilot, if you want to call them that, the, so the one who was landing was 16,000 hours and the one who was starting up was 1,300 hours sorry 13,000 so 16 wow yeah so these are <laughs> like super experienced in terms of you know you're, you're the average hours out there so very very experienced the again I'll just scroll past it but the again the, the pilot landing had 22 years operating from that base uh, and the, the one who was starting up I think it was about two years I'll try and find the exact number there yeah so, so 22 years and the second one had been there for essentially almost seven years, sorry, two years as a pilot and then five years as a, as a tactical officer. So both pilots had been at this base for, for years and years and lots lots of experience. The The base itself, I, I went looking down. I, I couldn't I couldn't find it on Google Earth, so I had a look at your pictures there, but we're talking about a, a fairly urbanised area. It's not a, a massive airfield. This is essentially a, a hangar, a little bit of tarmac space, an approach point, uh, a little bit of grass, and then the, the the car park straight behind that for the obviously the, the the police officers who who work there. So I couldn't really see what was around it, but it, it's not. We're not talking tarmac at an airport here. This is a fairly con- constrained area. Yeah, definitely. It's um it falls within the metropolitan or the greater metropolitan of Los Angeles. This is uh, northeast. Los Angeles overall, yeah, it's one of the few green spaces in that concrete jungle, and they took the took the opportunity to put their police helicopter base there. So it's nestled in amongst trees, it's nestled in amongst roadways and houses. So uh, I imagine real estate is tight generally, and hence probably the initial design was at limits. But let's say. And, and that's the context in which they had operated probably for a very long time without incident in this regard and, and hence the, the sort of devilish nature of latent conditions like the behaviour of not quite using pad one or even going further back the decision to put the refuelling equipment on the limit of pad one at whatever point years before this event happened. It, it's just the, the real hard thing with these uh, latent conditions that exist for such a long time. So you can see in, in the video, it's basically front right of the of the video frame as you're watching it. That's the refuel point there. And some of the measurements they give. So it would have been about 10 feet. So if you're parked on the H in, in spot one, it, the fueling equipment would have been about 10 feet off the rotors on the, on the left-hand side. 
again, just trying to paint the the picture where everything is sort of being, you see everyone sort of creep the other way. The other thing from the original photo, so again, on your blog post, you've got the, like the, the heliport as it was and then as it is now after the accident where they've moved things around. But if you had one aircraft on spot one, one aircraft on spot two, and then an aircraft approaching to the approach point, like there's not all three would be pretty tight. So it's not as though there's a whole heap of extra room past the pad two there uh, to, to use. If you pushed right on pad two, you would now be encroaching on the actual uh, approach point at the at the helipad. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, they they did everything to the limits to, to squeeze into that space. And uh, subsequently, they've sacrificed, I guess, some of those parking positions, although it looks like they established some more in slightly better, hopefully better locations within the space they've got. So there was a solution in the end, but it's just living with that for so long. And every day that it works, it works. So you gain confidence in that the design is is suitable for your needs. All right. What did you want to tease out next then in terms of some of the things that, that lined up? Um, I would love to have a discussion about the culpability of the pilot flying coming back into land. Sure. I have, I honestly have a pretty perhaps extreme view of absolutely zero culpability for that particular pilot. And I know you've, you just mentioned piloting command and, and what is often considered the ultimate and complete responsibility for the safety of the aircraft and everybody on board, which is almost a poetic approach to piloting and, and romanticized from days of old. But uh, I like to challenge those thoughts that when you're a pilot operating within a much larger socio-technical system, as they like to call it, that sometimes you're essentially set up to fail and there is nothing you can do, especially if you are operating within the context and the procedures of the system presented to you, that you can do to avoid that. And then I've often had this discussion, especially with respect to this pilot, that people will fall back on the, the ultimate responsibility of the PIC argument that, well, she was the last link in the chain uh, in this particular event and in often many events. But I just don't see often in these discussions that actually I don't know how she could have done it any different. Yeah, and this is where it comes back to that idea that I said before, you can hold two different viewpoints at the same time and, and both can be correct. Uh, and, you know, far be it for me to... To, to second guess a 16,000 hour pilot who's been there for, for 22 years. But it's, there's always going to be, you know, if someone drives a truck into the back of the helicopter while you're hovering or on the ground, there's not much you can do about that. It's, you know, there's a major mechanical malfunction. There is things that happen that are completely beyond your control. There's got to be some, and again, it's not causing fault or anything, but I, I just find it as a, as a pilot that, that pilot command, it's hard to step away from not being involved in that situation where your helicopter has actually impacted something else. Now, this, I can totally see how this has happened. Like the, the way this lines up, you just thankfully you're not in that in that pilot seat because how many people would have been in exactly the same boat? Like it's it's just as you said, set up for failure. But I still can't get away, and there's plenty of things go wrong with other people and everything. 
that there's some responsibility uh, that sits with that that pilot in command. Well, I mean, to use this particular example and and not to say exactly what was going through her mind, but to put yourself in that mindset of operating that aircraft, the, the, the objective or the process being to, once you've established hover over the FATO and then moving into air taxi, is to essentially follow and adhere to the markings on the ground since they've been designed to give you the buffer you need. Is there, what, what more can you do um, in that operating environment other, other than sort of just describing, well, not hit something? Yeah. But the, the markings are designed to give you that guidance to do and any diversion from the markings themselves leads into potentially knock-on impacts in other areas that may or may not manifest in any particular scenario. But uh, I, I tend to be very, very forgiving to this this pilot in this scenario and, and many other operators in other scenarios where they are essentially following the procedure that would work on any other day and not not for the latent condition that existed, this, the systemic issue associated with where the other aircraft is often put on this pad that essentially in my mind often just purely absolves the the landing pilot in this case yeah look this is sort of, before we move on this is such a, a great discussion topic and i'd love to you know, have this with with all students and and so you know in terms of a teaching point or a learning point and and please all like this should not be taken as me as attacking anyone but it's just such a good learning point that if someone's marshalling you at an airport or when we talk about taxi lines and things like that, they are there to, to give you guidance. It's your choice as a pilot in command whether you actually follow that marshaller's instruction and put the aircraft where they want you to put it. Or like if, if someone marshals you into an obstacle, like unless it's behind you or, right, you know, especially if you've got a crew on board, which we'll talk about the other people on, on board the helicopter, if someone's trying to marshal you somewhere you don't want to go, don't go there. Like they are giving you guidance. You're in control of the, the helicopter. Uh, so that's in terms of, of the marshalling. Now, again, you're going to have to have pretty good reason not to follow them. But if you follow them and you hit something, it's, again, you, you put the aircraft in that situation. And the same with the, the taxi lines, I completely can't where it comes from in terms of like airport operations and someone's actually gone the effort of putting paint down on the, on the ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's still nothing, especially in a helicopter, forcing you to, to follow that line. So as much as target fixation as there is of having a H on the ground, and that's where you want to land the helicopter and you get out and you check how straight the skids are if you, if you line it up uh, and, and you score yourself on, on how – nicely and how straight you landed on the H, it's still your choice of where you put that that helicopter on the ground. The the H is there as as guidance. And the same, you know, if, if an aircraft is taxiing on the center line and their wingtip hits another aircraft, it, it would be you know hard to point back to the center line and absolve yourself from the fact that you hit the wingtip of the other aircraft, uh, even though you're on the center line. Like I, I think you would have to still be looking at your wingtips and and judging clearances and not following the, the marking 
as, as set. I, like there's so many edge cases there, but I, I would love just to to hammer that home to anyone who hasn't hit that situation, you know, hasn't thought about it. Is if you're on the controls of the helicopter, you're choosing where you put it. Any guidance from markings, marshallers, anything else like that is just guidance. You choose where you put it. <laughs> yeah. Don't, don't want to hammer it home, but yeah, like it, it's, it's just a. It, unless you've thought about it, it's it's something you might just take for granted. Yeah, but the scenarios, a couple of the scenarios you're just describing there, it's worth diving into some of them in particular. I mean, the, yeah. the idea of when you're being marshaled or, or given guidance, and and I absolutely accept that in this case. It, they're static markings giving guidance, and in other times it might be a human being uh, giving you guidance. And that particular scenario you described sounds more like the pilot has identified an issue. Um, and in that case, we want to sort of fall back on CRM, TRM concepts of, well, if you're in doubt, call it out approach, yeah. and, and to raise those concerns as well. Wingtip clearance and issues like that, it does get very squirrely there, especially with larger aircraft and the angles involved and whether wingtips are even visible from cockpits. There is a certain amount of reliance that that you essentially have to have. And in, and in every other day, you do have in the markings that will provide you those clearance. And I mean, I think when I started blogging on my website, there were a spate of taxiway collisions, all very similar scenarios to what I think you were getting at there, aircraft pushed back too early and moving into the, the taxiway area and an aircraft coming along, following dutifully following the, the yellow line on the taxiway and, of course, hitting the back of the other aircraft with its wing. Uh, appears to be the aggressor, if you will, in that type of scenario, but, of course, was just following the guidance on the ground. And I'm not sure what could have been possible in a lot of those scenarios, given that Quite a few of them happen at night and the issues with perspective and moving objects at different angles and things like that. I'm not quite sure how much we expect pilots to be able to achieve with respect to those those visual perception cues yep. that, that exist. Um, so, but of course, there, there's always a realm in which you do have to drive home, I agree, the obligation that comes along with the privilege of being a pilot in command of an aircraft but i i often see it used as a bit of a crutch for not delving deeper into systemic issues and organizational issues i think in this particular case though when you look at the whole piece and especially how the police department reacted after the ntsb provided their reports it's actually a really good case study in a functional, albeit still reactive, safety management environment. And if there's, if you want to touch on anything else about the operational aspects and the day of the incident, um, we definitely can. But there's still some stuff that occurs much later, and you see in the improvements to the heliport that are still great indicators of, of a, a good safety culture albeit one that exists where we have these normalized deviances, just goes to show you the complexity of what an effective uh, safety management environment can be. But uh, is there anything else about the operational aspect and, and what happened on the day 
Yeah, there's a couple more ones I'll, I'll tease out and then we'll jump into the organisational parts of it mm. because that is absolutely a, a big part because, again, you want to solve the issue going forward. It is absolutely useless just to say the pilot's fault and leave it at that because you don't fix anything. Uh, and, and, again, I'm not saying it's pilot's fault. It's just a, a teaching point mm. yeah. uh, for especially for operating, you know, in many cases off airfield with people who aren't trained marshals necessarily. They, they have an idea of where they think the helicopter should go. Um, it's not always the, the best spot. But, yeah, look, I wanted to talk about the the, the rest of the crew uh, in, the, in, the, in the flying helicopter, first of all. So there was essentially the, the police tactical officer. And it's interesting, the wording they use in the report is that that's the, the commander. So that would have been essentially the mission commander. And the pilot, while they would have been aircraft captain, is really the, the taxi driver for all intents and purposes. So... You know, all the stuff that goes with being an aircraft commander, sorry, aircraft captain, but the, the mission commander would have been in the other left hand seat. And presumably they are a fairly experienced aircrew operator as well. And so they would have been on the, on the side closest to the other aircraft. So I guess my question or, you know, thinking there is, is it, they weren't, obviously didn't provide enough clearance on that side. So there must have been either a breakdown of training or communication or, or something there that the, the crew aspect didn't work in this particular incidence? Well, I've, I would have to confess some ignorance in that respect. I, I think there's definitely a decision-making dynamic there that would be very interesting to see. Uh, and again, it's not quite a military environment, but I'd love to know how much rank might play in, in those decisions as well as the, the command versus pilot and command piece. But I wouldn't know enough about what flight safety responsibilities that commander has. Uh, perhaps they are mission-focused and they do get to be overridden uh, and, and perhaps they're actually told not to make those decisions unless they're uh, significant or obvious safety ones. Again, I, I don't know. Is the suggestion from the material that that commander no, is required to be a qualified helicopter pilot? No, and I guess that's not where I'm going, but even just being air crew, I would be amazed if there's not some kind of crew resource management or clearance training in terms of, mm. you know, clearing that side of the aircraft. And again, it's the same as a loadmaster on that side, that the pilot will obviously take the input and put the aircraft there. But And it's not mentioned anywhere in the in the report, but I took that out that, you know, you've got essentially the crew on board and it does say there was another passenger in the back, so that could have been someone else in the, in the back. It's not relevant. Mm. But, uh, yeah, I would just be surprised in a, in a situation like that. There's, there's nothing else to, to go on. Uh, it, it doesn't get drawn out anywhere. It's just be, you know, my impression of what another professional front-seater doesn't have to be a pilot, but they're still acting essentially as a as mission crew, uh, would be, you know, looking out for the, for the aircraft. Um, so... It's just, yeah, again, just spitballing in terms of a, an observation. Yeah, I mean, that, that's an, an interesting idea and just speculating on it just 100% because um, maybe something was required in, of that particular person or anybody else on the aircraft, given that it's a mission-focused operation. There are no passengers, really, essentially. What level of responsibility is assigned to those people in that context? I can imagine a... a a loadmaster 
or, or other technical personnel on, say, HEMS aircraft have dedicated responsibility for maintaining a lookout and ensuring clearance with objects during particular phases of flight. And it would be interesting to, to know if this particular person had a, a responsibility at that phase of flight for that clearance observation, or if it was a more passive, if you see something, uh, alert the pilot in a good CRM manner rather than being obligated to maintain a lookout. It, it's, it would be an interesting dynamic in this particular mission environment. Right, two more ones I'll, I'll pull out just um, in terms of seeing out there on, on the pad. Uh, one, the first one is the, the radio comms, and then the second one was the actual uh, positioning or the, or the second aircraft and uh, the people at that aircraft. Uh, so the report basically says the normal procedure was and the, the airborne aircraft made a radio call saying they were returning to base on, on approach. Uh, but it doesn't seem to be picked up by the by the second aircraft. And again, it's not clear, but you know, quite often if we're coming in approach and landing beside someone, we'll initiate contact and say, hey, just coming in on your right-hand side, especially if you're coming from the rear somewhere, uh, just to, to alert the other aircraft. Uh, you may not necessarily wait for a response, but again, in this, in this case, there didn't seem to, they either missed the radio calls or the second aircraft while they were starting up didn't have the, the radio up initially, uh, but there, it looks like there could have been some communication breakdown or set up there where both aircraft weren't in communication with each other. The second one, again, is just the placement. Um, it talked about there was there was water on the pad, so again, you know, just something that people got used to. It must have been a dip on the helipad on pad one, and so there was there was water on the pad, which is given as one of the reasons they they moved further towards pad two when they push the aircraft out. Uh, and, yeah, so essentially there's, there's two crews, so pilot and the uh, tactical officer or the mission commander in that aircraft that, that was running on the ground. And in the video, you see someone standing next to the helicopter who, who runs away as, as they impact. Uh, and apparently from the report, that was actually the the air supervisor. So presumably they were the, you know, filling the roles as a chief pilot. So they'd come down to talk to the second aircraft to basically discuss the weather, whether it was worth launching or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would have been another opportunity there, having a supervisor, you know, seeing the aircraft wasn't on the H and whether that was a, a, a point that would have been brought up or not um, or if that was just accepted practice. Again, just sort of pulling that out from the investigation report. Yeah, it's just more example of the, the tragedy of these scenarios is that everybody in their own context have perfectly reasonable reasons for doing everything they did and uh, that just puts them on this literal collision course uh, later on in the scenario and, and it's just reinforced time after time like you say with the ponding water and the proximity to the fuel uh, facilities on pad one just normal behavior everyone does it and and even like you say the supervisors there talking to an aircraft that's not positioned on pad one is just normalize that for what everyone considers completely valid reasons both at the time and probably historically operating in that heliport it's um it's just the bit that that still boggles the mind when we we go through these processes and look at these issues is that 
uh, often people always have very good reasons for doing what they do. Last one was with the, the rain, there was um, basically water droplets on the on the bubble uh, for that the flying aircraft, so that would have cut down the, the visibility there a little bit too. So it's just one more factor in terms of trying to hover and, and land with uh, you know water beating on the um, on the windscreens, just to, in terms of visibility and, and taking the absorbing concentration essentially because you, you have to work that much harder to sort of look at the things you want to look at and uh, cut down on your on your peripheral. But yeah, yeah. that's in terms that's, of operational stuff, that's kind of the things I picked out. But uh, <laughs> I'll let you run with it and stop talking. Well, no, the visibility piece, that, that's something that actually I have zero experience with, but um, I can only imagine that for the pilot focusing on the the lower bubbles, like down where she can see through her feet, uh, where there's most likely less water droplets, to look at a big yellow H or, or two, I think it was, on the ground was no doubt preferable for her own understanding of uh, positioning herself than looking through the side windows to try and ascertain the, the relative location of two mostly invisible disks above them at, and uh, three or four metres away. So you can see that perhaps, yes, she's being led into a particular way of thinking because it gives good feedback and good understanding of where she is, again, relying on uh, a confidence that those markings would provide, uh, that, that they would be clear of everybody else. Yeah, and look, you know, 16,000 hours and 22 years of landing on that H <laughs> with just successfully, with no, with no incidents, uh, it, it would just paint you in, in a very narrow mindset in terms of that's just where it goes. Mm. All right, let's tackle the, the organisational stuff. What have you got for us? Yeah, so the Pasadena PD uh, provide a response after everything which gets filed in the NTSB system, which I think is still available on their website, albeit through uh, a myriad of, of little virtual corridors. But I, I quite like the approach they took. Uh, it was a considered approach. They had this event. They got the NTSB accident report. I didn't go fishing for any ramifications for the pilots. One would hope that the large investment they'd already made in the crews, that they supported them through whatever they needed after the event and, and if it was appropriate, got them back flying because you really don't want to lose that experience overall. But with respect to their facility, they went through a very measured approach of getting consultants in to have a look at it Remeasure it, work on how the facility could best be used, and and as you can see, if you've got uh, Google Earth or something and scroll back in time, you can see what it looked like. Also on my website, back at the time of the accident, and what it now looks like is is much more generous in the spacing it provides, and a few additional facilities provided at the heliport. So the response by the PASAPD is very much that mindset of avoiding the same event in the future, learning from the mistakes and making changes that uh, hopefully will not lead to the same thing happening again. 
For sure, and I might try and grab or, or link to those photos because it makes a difference. And they've essentially cannibalized some of that grass area that was behind the original helipads and created a, a second pad out in the middle of that grass area. Uh, so in, in terms of ground handling, you know, they're, they're going to be pushing an aircraft a lot further uh, if you have a look at how far it is from, from the different spots. So there's that downside that you need to, to move the aircraft a bit. But the... Yeah, I guess the extra tarmac space and the separation now would make it incredibly difficult to repeat that that situation. It's uh, they basically blanked out the old markings, and where spots one and two used to be is now essentially one large spot, and then the second spot is is completely separated um, with a huge buffer. But uh, yeah, there's now plenty of room between the actual approach point and the parking spot, and then the fuel bowser. All the uh, all the fuel storage, mm. and and they didn't stop there, which was really good. So that that addresses the uh, physical aspects, the the environmental aspects, or the proximal aspects to what happened in the event. But they went a bit further and noticed that essentially that they'd allowed these conditions, these normalized deviant behaviors, to to first be established and then become the, the norm. And so that essentially their safety management system wasn't really functioning. They didn't have the appropriate forums to raise safety issues, to, to identify hazards and talk about issues and, and address them. And so they revitalized that or implemented safety meetings and they started doing operational checks to ensure that their procedures generally were being followed in real operations. So they, they took that even a step further that is probably, and you'll never know if it's implemented correctly, avoided further accidents, incidents, issues that from ever really propagating or getting to a position where they can manifest in such spectacular and horrific ways. So uh, overall, I think this is a, it's a pretty good story and I wish it could be projected through the video that gets shared so much but unfortunately we tend to focus just on that sort of five seconds of horror that occurs in the video and and create stories from that rather than delving in and having a look at all the rest that's involved in the aftermath of that incident and trying to avoid similar incidents in the future yeah and i think if if the only thing we've achieved is next time you see that video pass around that you've got a bit more of an idea of the, the background. I'll link to the, to the full report so you can do a bit more reading there and just follow the, the chain and see how it stacks up for, for the people involved and how you could quite easily find yourself in, in the same situation if you'd had the same experience operating there uh, for that length of time and in those conditions on, on the day and just how everything just unfolds. Just watching that sort of train wreck come together in slow motion but yeah hopefully especially that one being such a high profile one gives you a little bit of a, a taste in terms of what some of the, the background is there and dan's got the blog on, on your site what's the url again for that one dan yeah so it's the runway centerline.com uh centerline spelt the australian way with an re and uh but no dot au at the end and this particular blog post is sort of buried in about two years ago. So you're looking for a May 2020 
to find this one. Or you can search uh, using the search bar, just search uh, Pasadena PD. You should get the relevant uh, post up without a problem. Yeah, and if you're on LinkedIn, if you look for, for Dan Parsons, you can have a look at Dan's profile and, and see you know the many sort of things he's got going on at the moment. Uh, and he's got basically speaking gigs at uh, different conferences, pushing changes in, in, in or explaining, I guess, regulations that are coming up uh, around that area as well in terms of airports and heliports. So, mate, thank you very much for yeah having a willing to have a go and, and crack this one open and, and have a look at it. No, I appreciate it. I love talking about this stuff. I, I like writing about it and maybe more talking. As you mentioned, I've been doing a few conferences recently. Uh, which is somewhat exhausting, but um, I definitely like to share these sorts of messages because it's a complex world. And this one scenario, uh, anybody within the industry and perhaps even other industries can take a a myriad of lessons from events like this. And I I wish videos such as this would be the start of a conversation rather than often the end, as uh, unfortunately occurs on social media. But uh, no, I appreciate the opportunity and uh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And, and look, chances are someone who hears this may have first-hand experience or, or know a little bit more about what happened or the background there. And again, you know, whether you hit me up or, or hit Dan, uh, love to find out more. It just adds that colour. And if we are, either of us or anyone else is using it as case studies or any kind of training education material down the track to pass this on to other people, it just pulls out those lessons. So, yeah, please don't be shy if you've got something you can add to that. Uh, or especially if you've got something wrong that you really think needs to be corrected, uh, let us know so we can uh, put a correction out. But, yeah, hopefully it was enjoyable. And, Dan, mate, I'll, uh, I'll catch you around the traps. Brilliant. Thanks. As I was going through and editing, I thought of another scenario that could possibly catch someone out when returning for landing at a base. That's when you're using a mobile platform or landing trolley, the assumption is that if you had enough clearance to start up and safely depart, and you should be fine to approach straight to the trolley. When the operating area doesn't have a lot of room and that space is in demand, the landing platform might be moved to the side or taken away so that another helicopter can be pushed or, or rolled out. So when you come back, the wheel platform may not necessarily be in exactly the same location with the same clearances. It's something to keep in the back of your mind. For those that have served in the military, you might have experience with one of the foreign exchange programs where an aircrew member from another country's military would swap in and spend a few months operating with your unit. These are normally a bit of fun for all involved as you get to share cultures and hear about different ways of doing things. In relation to our chat today, what I was thinking about was the, the value of having a fresh set of eyes looking at how you do things. Even if it's just that it forces you to look at how you do things as well in a different different light. I'm not saying that would, would have prevented this accident, but afterwards, fresh eyes were, were definitely brought in and some pretty significant reworking of the heliport layout was put into place. Commercially, it might be difficult to convince some people, but imagine if you could find another helicopter company in a different market to yours, so maybe a, a utility company and a, a tour company. So there wasn't any kind of conflict and arranged to embed their their chief pilot or a senior aircrew member for even a week. And then your company would return a person to do the same for their company for the next week. 
I just wonder what that fresh set of eyes would pick up for the different companies and what practices could be improved or latent errors identified. It's hard, I, I know, to, to sometimes spot the errors in your, in your own work or your own practices. If you want to track down Dan, you can do a search on LinkedIn for Dan Parsons. And the same if you're searching on Google for Runway Centerline blog, the, the direct URL is the runwaycenterline.com. There's also links on the episode for this show, so episode 109 at rotarywingshow.com. Links there to Dan's article. There's the embedded video that we've been talking about and also the accident reports. Track me down on LinkedIn also. Search for Mick Cullen and dropping an email at feedback at rotarywingshow.com. A huge thanks again to our supporters on patreon.com. If you get some value from the episodes and you felt you were able to throw in a dollar towards the operating costs, which is mainly just the, the download bandwidth cost from Amazon, where the, the files stream from, then look, any support is super appreciated. So these amazingly intelligent, good-looking people are who we have to thank for this episode. Peter, Robert, Josh, Matt, David, Max, Mark, Ian, Hal, Stephen, Alida. Ben, Jeff, Mike, Bill, Jason, Brent, Michael, AJ, Mark, Shannon, Kirillin, Eric, Jake, Chris, Gareth, John, Heath, Kevin, Tony, Peter, Jason, Michael, and Rendell. Quick update on me, as I know it's been several months. If you've been following along, you might know that my instructor position at the flight school was made redundant at the, the very start of 2021. I spent most of 2021 retraining into cybersecurity. And just before Christmas, I basically got picked up a, a new role for this year, actually as a, a software developer. So I've been on a full-time wage since January and essentially full-time training the entire period as well. It's been Work from home, which has been amazing and a different experience. Little things like uh, there's an Uber Eats lunch allowance for Thursdays for the company. I want more money now than I ever was as a chief instructor, a manager of the flight school. There's a staff equity program, so I've actually earned equity three times since January in the, in the company itself. Little things like a $5,000 personal training budget, which goes a long way when it's uh, not for, uh, for flying hours. And Believe it or not, the last two Thursdays, I've actually played computer games in the afternoon and streamed to, to Twitch for the, the company Twitch channel and uh, can now call myself a, a pro streamer. The little things you notice, though, is that after a couple of weeks, I realised that I hadn't looked at a, a weather forecast or a, the radar picture for those couple of weeks, whereas that was something I used to, to live and die by, the, the weather forecast. So although I, I really miss the flying and spending time with, with students, I am really lucky to be in, in a good spot personally and that it has worked out for me. Industry-wise, I'm seeing a few more helicopter jobs here in Australia, and from the sound of things, there is real demand for helicopter aircrew in the US. After a a few slow years, things are are looking up for lots of people. 